Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and today I'll be solo uh, with a quick hitter edition. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, electrical storm, refractory ventricular fibrillation, and ESMOL. This is a, a protocol that we recently uh, rolled out at MCHD, and just wanted to give the listeners a little background into why uh, some of the data surrounding ESMOL and refractory VF, and for our MCHD listeners to review uh, our ESMOL refractory VF protocol here uh, at the service. So let's start with a case, this just to illustrate the patient that we're talking about. You got a 55-year-old male exercising at the local YMCA just down the road uh, from the main offices. If you're listening here in Montgomery County, uh, he's on the treadmill, collapses, found apneic and pulseless. The bystanders go grab the AED out in the lobby. They use it properly. It advises shock two times prior to EMS arrival. EMS arrives, monitor shows VF, gets another uh, 200 joules times two, an eye gel, a couple rounds of epi, still in VF. So now we're really off the ACLS algorithm rails. So what do we do next? This is a 55-year-old guy, you know, 5'10", 165 pounds, exercising, healthy, uh, appearing prior. This is one we really want to you know, throw the kitchen sink at and give the best opportunity for a save. So let's back up and talk about electrical storm. What is it? What do we think causes it? Uh, and when we uh, have our discussion today, electrical storm and refractory ventricular fibrillation or retractory VF, these are really interchangeable. Uh, this is not the 50 plus percent survival of collapse, AED, shockable rhythm, gets shocked, gets ROSC. Uh, these are great. You know, we, we want AEDs everywhere we can stick them. We want early hands-on chest, all the good bystander CPR stuff we talked about on the podcast before. This is the ones that, it's small subset of a small subset that don't respond. Um, looking in the literature, there's not an absolute clear definition. Most authors and most sources define VF uh, refractory as three shocks, normal ACLS, uh, amiodarone, then you move into the electrical storm realm. Most commonly thought to be an acute ischemic trigger, and that causes catecholamine surge, so your adrenals dump all your norepi and your epi. And what do we do when we arrive? We dump some more epi on it, so we'll talk a little bit about why that may be a bad idea, but that beta agonist surge is trying your body trying to increase coronary perfusion, but you also end up with a drastic afterload increase as well. So again, now what we do is we pour gas on the fire, I believe. Epi on epi, not always the best idea. We're not going to go down into the rabbit hole of the Paramedic 2 trial that came out uh, last year, but the safe to say that the role of epinephrine in cardiac arrest in general is being scrutinized, evaluated. You know, do we improve outcomes? Do we just improve ROSC? How much epi? When should the epi be given? There's lots and lots of opinions out there. Not entirely relevant to the discussion today, but I think it's a valid question to ask, are we making things worse? So this guy's young, he's healthy, he's hitting the treadmill. It's really, again, kitchen sink time. 
So if beta agonist effects are bad, or we're presuming they're possibly bad, what about a beta blocker? And what's the evidence? And that's where Esmolol comes into play. And as with most things in medicine, this is really a, a full circle idea that was present in the 60s and 70s. Propranolol, which is a nonspecific beta-1, beta-2 blocker, was in cardiac arrest algorithms for just this idea. You've got cardiac arrest, you've got increased catecholamine surge, you've got increased afterload. Well, how can we decrease myocardial oxygen demands? Let's give a beta blocker. So again, propranolol in cardiac arrest algorithms back in the 60s and 70s, before a lot of the listeners were born. So why esmolol, why not propranolol? Esmolol has much more uh, desirable properties in this situation than propranolol as it's a beta-1 selective blocker. So we're just going to hit uh, the cardiac beta-1s and it's ultra short acting. Half-life's nine minutes. So the naysayers may say, yeah, you're giving a beta blocker to a cardiac arrest patient. You get them back and then you're, you know, you're basically iatrogenically putting them in, you know, cardiogenic shock. So if you get ROSC, this is gone and away and not contributing to that shock in any way, shape or form because it's only, you know, it's only around for less than 10 minutes. So where does the data come from? There are two main human retrospective studies. Uh, recent meta-analysis really was released on these, but the two main human studies that are cited are Driver et al. from 2014 in resuscitation and Lee et al. from 2016, also in resuscitation. Now, there's several animal studies comparing esmolol to epinephrine, which show improved perfusion, prolonged end tidal production with esmolol. You know, have to start somewhere. But I'm not going to base protocol decisions on swine studies. It's not, you know, it's idea generating. But the two human studies, first one, driver, looked at esmolol and refractory VF, and they found a 50% survival using esmolol as opposed to a 10% survival using normal ACLS. Sounds great, right? 19 patients in the standard group six patients in the Esmolol group. So we're talking tiny numbers there. Lee, 56% sustained ROSC with Esmolol, 16% with normal ACLS in refractory VF. And that was a hospital-based study along with, along with the driver study. So these were not pre-hospital. But you're talking, again, 25 patients in the driver study total, 41 patients total in the Lee study. So 41, 25, that's 66 total patients. So while it's idea generating and sounds great, realistically, we don't have a ton of human data here. And this, this is a small subset of patients. And for just the reason that we talked about at the beginning, this is a 55-year-old healthy male needs the kitchen sink. We feel like at MCHD that this is worth, worth a shot. And we're collecting our data as we speak. What's our protocol? Before we even get to Esmol, we still have to concentrate on what we know saves lives. Dispatch bystander CPR, dispatch instructions, all the things we talked about in the bystander CPR episode, hands on chest as soon as possible, minimal pauses. If you're using uh, mechanical CPR devices out there, get them on quickly. Don't allow there to be a pause in between the switch from man manual to mechanical. We found at MCHD that we had uh, some delays there and we spend some directed time working on that and have improved our numbers. Whether we're going to manage an airway definitively or not here in this situation, really superglottic airways are the way to go to start. And that's what we encourage here at MCHD. Get early IO access. Uh, if you have mechanical CPR devices, the idea of, of offload Loading, being able to make those critical clinical decisions instead of concentrating on doing manual CPR, you know, frees up your hands, frees up your mind. We're going to continue using Epi here at MCHD for now, uh, but we're not going to, you know, 
hose that gas on the fire continuously. We're limiting our epi to two doses max, not based in any literature, just in the conceptual idea that these people are in catecholamine surge, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth dose of, dose of epi that we've all given, probably clinically irrelevant, if not harmful. Uh, amiodarone IV, 200 joules times two, and then we're progressing into the consideration of electrical storm and esmolol, along with double sequential defibrillation or dual sequential defibrillation, uh, another topic for another episode. What's our dose of esmolol? 500 micrograms per kilogram in a single bolus. Logistically, it's cheap, 15 bucks a vial, easy to store, easy to dose. If you've read these studies or you've looked at the esmolol data, you may be asking yourself, what about a drip? Luckily enough, fairly short transport times here in Montgomery County. So we're deferring uh, drip administration until ED arrival. Where's this heading in the future? Esmolol timing, uh, in my mind, is a big one. If this is a catecholamine surge situation, drastic afterload increase, decreased coronary perfusion from this, then esmolol timing is, is of the essence. So in my mind, from a hypothesis standpoint, the earlier the better. So where is ideal esmolol timing gonna, gonna hash out? We don't know yet. Epinephrine removal, if I had my magic crystal ball and could look five to 10 years in the future, it would not shock me at all if epinephrine is removed from cardiac arrest algorithms. But not yet, not here at MCHD. How about scooping and running? Cath lab on Lucas in refractory VF. This is done in many centers. Here in Montgomery County, we are not doing this at this time, but if I had my three wishes, three cardiac arrest wishes, this might be one of them. So depending on our receiving, receiving hospitals and uh, their willingness to partner with us on this, we would love to look towards moving to taking these folks from the scene to the cath lab on the Lucas because such a high percentage of these people are acute coronary ischemia. ECMO is another. There's ECMO in the States now, pre-hospital in Albuquerque. Really exciting stuff that they're doing down there. We don't have capabilities here in Montgomery County yet, but again, five to 10 years from now, when the uh, as technology improves, costs decrease, size decreases. This is uh, definitely a patient that may benefit uh, from ECMO. If you've read the case reports recently in the past few months, stellate ganglion nerve block, something that I'm personally never performed, but there was a recent case report of a refractory VF recovery with a stellate ganglion nerve block. I'm gonna need to go back to, to learn that one if we ever get there. And then really just better cardiac arrest, more robust cardiac arrest data in these refractory VF patients. I know you may be saying, yeah, we're looking for unicorns and yetis too, as these are very difficult patients to study, uh, very heterogeneous, uh, really tough to look at the data from these patients, but let's keep our eyes open, keep our ears open. There's gonna be more to come, hopefully. So what are we gonna take home from this episode? Here at MCHD, after two epis, two shocks, amio, normal ACLS, no response. Think refractory VF, electrical storm, and esmolol. Don't forget the basics. Minimize pauses, especially between that transition from manual CPR to mechanical. Uh, Post-ROS management's gonna stay the same. You know, if you need fluid bolus, if you need push-dose epinephrine, if they're in shock, which again, sounds a bit counterintuitive, but once you once you get the patient back, you need to support their uh, hemodynamics, uh, support their oxygenation, maximize, uh, you know, their, their vent care, all the things that we normally do now. Keep, again, keep your ears open. Hopefully one day soon here at MCHD, we will we'll be able to transport this specific group to the cath lab on the Lucas as definitively most of these folks 
need the LAD or the RCA or whatever big coronary vessel was occluded opened up. As always, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. If you have questions or concerns, email us at podcast at mchd-tx.org. Leave us a review or a like where you listen. If you have ideas or questions or concerns, you can always get in touch with us and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.